Hello, my name is Omar Rivas Plata. This is Sample Space, the podcast series of the Department of Statistical Science at University College London. Today, we are happy to welcome Sam Tico. Sam is a lecturer at the University of Bristol, and today we're going to talk about his career in statistics and his research in change point detection. Welcome, Sam. Thanks very much, Omar. And uh, yes, I had no idea this was called Sample Space. Um, Sam on Sample Space. I'm not entirely sure what to make of that, but uh, there we go. Thank you, thank, thank you very much for the invite. Very appropriate name uh, for people interested in statistics, I think, and uh, catchy name anyways. Welcome, Sam. Um, thank you very much. We are going to be talking about a few things related to your career journey and uh, your current research. So. Would you mind telling us about your career journey? Like, for instance, did you always know that you would like to pursue a career in statistics? How and when did you find out? Yes, that's an interesting question. I suppose I've always liked maths um, from sort of as long as I can remember. Really, um, I've always, I've always enjoyed, I've always enjoyed uh, my numbers. And really, it's just a case of I've always, I've always liked mixing that with with facts about the real world in in some way. So uh, mixing those two things together, it sort of, I sort of fell into statistics in quite a natural fashion. So I just sort of spend time absorbing facts from 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 all sorts of useless places. Really, um, I, I I'm I'm a mine of of of, uh, of of really useless information, I would say. And it was really sort of towards the end of my undergraduate studies that uh, that, that that sort of became the dominant. The dominant thing. Um, I, I sort of realised that uh, sitting there and proving something uh, abstract in, say, representation theory wasn't wasn't going to be my calling in life. Um, and really, it was getting down and dirty with really really interesting data sets that can hopefully someday help us change the world. Um, so I've, I've always I've always liked the big problems. I've always been attracted to the big problems. And uh, yes, I've been fortunate in my career so far that. Um, a few big problems have coincided um, with <laughs> with my career over the last few years. Um, not not to mention COVID and uh, and the, the looming spectre of climate change, etc. Um, so yes, there's, there's there's no shortage of problems. I can't claim to be offering any solutions at all, but uh, that's it's certainly it's certainly a ripe uh, arena, shall we say, for the statistician to get their teeth stuck into things. And that makes uh, complete sense. Were there any? tough obstacles that you needed to overcome at that early stage of your career? That's a great question. Um, I'd say that the honest answer to that is is no, but that was purely because I was quite fortunate in terms of mentors, etc., who who had my back. So just a quick roll call of where I was and what I did. So my original undergraduate degree was was at Cambridge. Um, and from there, I did the uh, uh, Story Centre for Doctoral Training uh, programme at Lancaster University. And really, that environment has is truly fantastic for, for fostering great statistical thinking. Uh, and also, it's fantastic for operational research. So Story standing for statistics and operational research with industry. So there's a real focus there, as I say, on these kind of hot button um, problems with some application to uh, an industry of choice so while i was there it was there, there really wasn't any any question of, uh, of of my needs not being met and really i think well i'm i'm, I'm therefore a big proponent of the cdt model for um, for doing phds as a result of that i obviously appreciate there are certain pluses uh, <laughs> in terms of the traditional model of phds as well but uh, yes i'm I'm, cert I'm certainly a full cdt convert that sounds great and it's great to hear i i, I from all accounts 
the CDT model has um, many advantages and it encourages and it fosters like great careers among uh, among early researchers. So I'm, I'm totally in line with you. Indeed, yes. And I think it's not obviously it's not just a story. I mean, here in Bristol, we have Compass, um, which has produced, I mean, it's, 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 very, it's very, very new, just started a few years ago, pretty much the same time as I started at Bristol. And it's going from strength to strength and again has these great industrial links that uh, really set it apart as, as, as a program and there are various other CDTs across the country in a similar vein. Sort of change point a little bit and uh, in the conversation I mean tell us sure. about your research in change point detection. Sure yes yeah. so uh, speaking of the CDT that, that I was at um, while I was there I was focusing on a PhD concentrating on change point detection. So my final thesis title is called Change Detection for Data Intensive Settings. And I was thinking about several particular problems that existed at the time, the time being sort of 2016 to 19. The first problem I was focused on was parallelization of various existing change point detection methods. The state of play in 2016 was you had these really rather fast change point detection methods for a single sequence of data, univariate data, in the offline setting. You can see all the data uh, in advance. That was great. And you could, you, could, you could find the change points in linear time, but only in expectation. So there's this great method called PELT, which is, I think, probably the most cited change point paper of all time. PELT stands for pruned exact linear time. And there's a successful R package, and I think now a successful Python package as well. I think it's in ruptures. But as I say, it's only an expectation that this, this, this thing is linear. And in the worst case, it can be quadratic, which means it's kind of necessarily a disadvantage, but it, it, it can be as slow as some methods that were in the literature quite a long time ago. My first job was to try and um, use some just subtle little tweaks to the algorithm to mean that you get a, essentially a worst case linear cost uh, at all times, but, but keeping that good theoretical guarantee that you are going to find the change points. Um, you have asymptotic consistency in, in the locations and the number of change points that you find. So you have to make some assumptions with regards to how the change points are spaced within the data. So you can't have sort of, you know, a pathological number popping up as you increase the amount of data that you collect. But subject to these assumptions, you can find the change points. And this was joint work with uh, my supervisors, um, so Professor Sidris Eckley and Paul Thurnhead at Lancaster, and also a, a former, another former story student, Dr. Kayleigh Haynes. All great people, all very, very published and established in the change point literature. So that was my first project. My second project, as I say, I'm very much interested in data. Uh, data uh, that's, that's the reason I became a statistician after all. And so I went looking for a, a, a fun data set that I could sort of just get, apply apply any old change point model to. Um, just, 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 just have fun for a little while. As ever, the first port of call was Kaggle, because of course it is. One data set that I found was uh, the Global Terrorism Database, uh, the GTD. Now, the Global Terrorism Database, which is copyrighted to the University of Maryland, is a fantastic open source resource it essentially has every single terror activity since 1970 compiled within it um, from everywhere around the world. And it's maintained by the National Consortium for the Study of Terrorism and Responses to Terrorism, or START. And what I thought was, okay, we can we can see where things are happening in the database. You can, you've, you've, got, you've got sort of a country location. You've even got a sort of geographic, exact geographic location if you want it. You've got all sorts of details with regards to what happened at the event. But I was more interested in how things evolved over time. I asked myself the question, what would happen if we were to do a count of the number of incidents within a given period of time? You could choose a day, you could choose a week. I chose to do it in months. So every month from 1970 to the present day in a given region or country, 
what would happen then? Would we see sort of points in time where the probability of a terrorist attack seems to change abruptly uh, across a given country, a given region or around the world? That was the fundamental question I asked myself. That led to a few interesting change point questions, because when we have count data, we are outside the world of, 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 of normal distributions. And a lot of the change point detection theory lives in the normal distribution world. So if you pick up a random change point paper that's say in the Annals of Statistics or, or JASA or something, chances are it's got some really nice, beautiful theory in there. And also the strong chances are that theory will mostly be confined to the world of normal distributions. That was certainly true 10 years ago. It's less true now, but uh, it was it was certainly true 10 years ago. I mean, still, it's the case that most theory is confined to you know, a fairly restrictive class of distributions. So that was a problem. So we needed, we needed, we needed to, um, A, come up with a method that was able to handle count data in this in this way. And, and while still being efficient, there were existing methods, but we, we wanted to, we wanted to try and come up with something new. And B, we also wanted to come up with some theory that uh, that, that would work in in this setting. So this was this was the challenge. Uh, and as I say, it was inspired totally by just looking at a data set and saying, well, the tool doesn't seem to exist for this yet. Let's let, let's go away and have a look at it. So that was that was project number two, and that led to a method called subset. So I, I mentioned PELT before as, as as an acronym of a change point detection method. Um, PELT, of course, being you know oh, it's, just, it's very very fast. You know, it's, it's, it's linear time or you know expect, expected linear time. Um, subset is a very very pained ac uh, acronym indeed. Um, it stands for uh, sparse and ubiquitous binary segmentation in efficient time. And everybody in the audience who didn't already think I was a monumental insert favorite colorful phrase here now thinks that. So for, for, I'll, I'll, pick, I'll unpick the different terms one by one. Sparse and ubiquitous, first of all. One key issue that we've, I've kind of already touched upon here is that, well, we want to detect changes in, first of all, in countries or regions uh, versus the whole world. And we want to be able to tell the difference between these two different types of change. We want to tell the difference between a change that affects, say, one country versus a change that affects everything at once. You know, it's a, it's a global change point. So we want to have good power, good statistical power to detect what we call sparse changes, changes that just are sparse in the, in, in the variants that are in the system versus global, global changes, changes that affect most, if not all of the variants in the system. Now, I use the word ubiquitous there. I think I, I, I think I just published the paper and it was two days later and somebody said, why didn't you use the word universal? And I paused for 10 seconds. And I went, I'm an idiot. Um, I should have just used the word universal. Um, but anyway, never mind. It, it, it's there forevermore that uh, I've used the word ubiquitous. Yes, it's, it's sparse ubiquitous in the sense we have good statistical power to detect both types of change. What excites you about this line of research? Um, what are the main open questions? What have you accomplished? Gosh, yes, yeah, so that's, that, that's a really big question. So what have I accomplished thus far? Rewinding slightly back to um, the beginning of PhD, PhD time when I first sort of started tackling the problem of change detection. Um, so we were talking about CDTs before. Um, back in my CDT days, I was thinking about, first of all, a problem in parallelization. So a parallelization of existing change point techniques. Now, there's this very fast method called PELT, stands for pruned exact linear time. Change point people absolutely love acronyms, and I'm no exception, as I'm sure we'll get onto in a moment. And this PELT method is extremely fast. It's uh, linear time in expectation. And the word exact there is essentially referring to the fact that it captures the change points according to minimizing some global cost function exactly. And by global cost function, feel free to go away and read the paper. It's, it, it's, it's essentially there's, there's an optimization problem that it's solving under the, under the hood to find these changes. So that's that's all very well, but uh, the key there is expected linear time. And in the worst case, it can still be quadratic. 
So that can still be a bit, a bit of a problem. Now, this paper is a fantastic paper. It's been cited thousands of times. I think it's probably the most heavily cited change point paper uh, in the literature. And it's only it's only about 10 years old. It was, again, a group of Lancaster people, two of whom were my supervisors. Uh, the third of whom was uh, Dr. Rebecca Killick, Professor Rebecca Killick, uh, as, as of this year. She's just recently been promoted. Uh, congratulations, Rebecca. However, as I say, in the worst case, it can still be quadratic. So the first project that I and my supervisors, Professors uh, Idris Ackley and Paul Fernhead, were thinking about was trying to do some subtle tweaks to the algorithm to make sure that we could in the worst case, make it linear. And so we did this at the cost of the exactness in that cost function that I described a moment ago. But we still proved that we could get asymptotic consistency in the locations and the numbers of the changes under some not too restrictive assumptions on where the change points spawn. Um, so you can't have sort of a pathological number of changes generating as you collect more and more data. So that worked nicely. And it was, it was a fun theoretical exercise. And that paper's now in the Journal of Computational and Graphical Statistics. And so the next um, question I started thinking about as part of my PhD, going back to this notion of um, you know, loving data and data being the king of things, uh, the center of things, I went on Kaggle and I found on Kaggle a really cool data set. And obviously the, the very first thing that one does is go on Kaggle, right? This data set is the Global Terrorism Database. Now, the Global Terrorism Database, or the GTD, is cooperated to the University of Maryland, and it is maintained and it's updated by the National Consortium for the Study of Terrorism and Responses to Terrorism, or START. It's a fantastic resource, a truly fantastic resource. You've got a compilation of every terrorist event since the beginning of 1970 to essentially the present day. You've got every single piece of information you might ever want about each terror activity, each bit of terror activity. And I thought, this is, this is a truly fantastic resource. You've got ma massive amount of data. How can I turn it into a change point problem? At the time, I, I was sort of constrained to, to have this sort of laser focus on the problem of changes. And so I thought to myself, well, what, what would happen if we counted the number of incidents let's say, per month in each, let's say, region of the world. We can partition the world into various regions um, according to the database. That's something we can do. We can, we can do it by country as well, but we'll do it by region. How many incidents do we see? And therein, can we find a point in time or points in time for each of these regions where the probability of a terrorist attack seems to increase or decrease suddenly? And suddenly we've got ourselves a change point problem. Quick question, Sam. Sure. Have these data set been studied by change point detection methods before? So that's a great question. It has been, but not in so many words. So the principal investigators on the Global Terrorism Database, Dugan Lefree, and I think there's a person called Miller as well, they have been writing about the, the GTD since it became open source in 2007. And they've released a number of fairly straightforward statistical analyses of it. I, they're, they're, I, they're not sort of you know, theoretical statisticians by trade, but they're, they're, they're very passionate about this data, data set and they've said some, had some really fantastic insights with regards to it. So for example, they've zeroed in on, for example, policy changes in the UK affecting a changing terror landscape in Northern Ireland during the Troubles between 1969 and 1992. They've um, also commented on the bigger picture with regards to what they call the, the globalization of terror between 1976 and 79. That's unfortunately when um, terror activity became much more prevalent throughout the globe. The globe it essentially tripled in between in those three years. They've also um, more recently commented on other countries, some commentary on Egypt, for example. They're, they're, they're putting out papers all the time about, about the data set um, just because they're, they're, they're essentially on the spot for it. With regards to non-principal investigators of the GTC. So you've got, uh, I think, a paper from about 10 years ago that analysed a kind of a by-day analysis on uh, Colombia. Um, so in particular, it was looking at the activities of FARC. Of course, I think uh, it was in 2016 that there was a, a peace agreement signed between FARC and the government, but 
this was there was a particularly brutal conflict that uh, happened between FARC and uh, the authorities, particularly in the late nineties and and the, and the early noughties. And they actually found to the day, this is the the investigators on this in this new paper using a hidden Markov model type approach. They found these sort of the exact day uh, where the US came in and said, right, we're going to try and tackle the drug economy in Colombia. And the US essentially came in and uh, and tr- to try and stop the activities of FARC, which was which is rather cool. However, obviously, we know that unfortunately some terror activities are far more efficacious in the number of lives they take than others. Uh, they, have far, they have a far wider impact and far more devastating. And I think it's important that statistical analyses take this into account. This is something I've this is something I've neglected. And one change point detection method did look at this. It was ha- it was having to do some more non detection type things in in concert. Uh, but essentially, it's important if you want to capture things like 9-11, because in, in, in my analysis, 9-11 is just kind of, oh, four incidents happened today. But it just sort of doesn't capture the full majesty of the fact that the world changed forever on the 11th of September 2001. So this is all knowledge uh, that existed, knowledge of like things that happened, events that happened, right? Mm. Uh, is it fair to say that the techniques and, and I guess the hopes of the research of applying this technique to this data was to be able to, in hindsight, predict those events in one way or another? I think that's a fair assessment, yes. I think One thing I would quite like to be able to think I contributed to one day is some way of looking at these data, which then could be taken to policymakers or people who are far more knowledgeable about me and the workings of how country X or region Y works and say, yeah, here you go. This is the overall signal of the data that you can see now. This is the history of the signal of the data. Feel free to go away and use this to recommend a suite of policies or you know a, 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 a general uh, a general platform for promoting peace and uh, less terror uh, going forward that was certainly my overriding concern uh, looking at these data and as you say within that you've got some notion of prediction in terms of how a, how a signal can can evolve whether abruptly or not this touches on a quite important issue so the analysis that I've presented so far is again entirely offline so my first project was focusing on parallelization of techniques and this this technique is sort of relies on the fact that you have an entire sequence that you've you've already seen this new technique that i was looking at to analyze a multivariate data set where you've got uh, abrupt changes in terror activity potentially in some region or across the world again it relies on you having seen 50 years worth of data and that's no good if you want to say ah yes i want to i want to predict what's going to happen in uh, colombia next week or next month so we want to be able to be online about things. And we also, ideally, we'd like to be model-free. So a lot of change detection methods will assume that when you change, you just, like, say, change a parameter in the distribution, whether this is, I'm going to go along and have it be a normal distribution and suddenly my mean alters abruptly, or I have a negative binomial distribution or a Poisson distribution if I'm thinking about counts, and then suddenly my one, of my, one or both of my parameters, if I'm a negative binomial, alters abruptly. That's all very well and good, and you can prove some nice theory with regards to how readily you can see a change depending on the sort of extent of the change, whether it's a difference in the means, for example, in the in the, uh, in, in the uh, normal distribution example. But we'd like to be a bit more general if we can. We'd like to be able to say, okay, I have one data generating process. We're going to change to some other data generating process. I'm not saying anything about what data generating process one is doing relative to generating process two. I'm just saying they're different. Can we detect it? And this is a much harder question than um, specifying what those two gener- data generation processes belong to in terms of uh, families of distributions, et cetera. As far as I'm aware, that's a very not terribly well-studied problem in the change point literature. So most change point detection problems will focus in their, with regards to their theory on 
I have this particular type of distribution. Let's see if we can do some nice theory based on this distribution. For example, let's say we've got exponential family or we've got normal distribution or something. So I wanted to try and be a little bit bolder for my final project, which was the very, very end of my PhD, but is also has also now spilled over into my in, into my current role. This is a new method that I call OMEN. Uh, and OMEN is kind of <laughs> harking back to the fact that uh, you mentioned prediction before. It's kind of a very, it's, it's, it's a way of crowbarring that in. But uh, yes, this, 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 is, this is the ominously named uh, OMEN, uh, which aims to, aims to be model-free, uh, while also saying, okay, we don't want to be able to have, you know, say that we've seen 50 years worth of data before we can get started on doing some analysis. We want to be able to run with the data as we collect it. And I suppose O in OMEN stands for online? That's exactly right. Yes, that's, that's exactly right. And uh, the M and the E stand for, well, the, the two extremes of the word multivariate. <laughs> and uh, the N is non-parametric. It's, it's, as I say, we, we change point people. We like, uh, we like our bad acronyms. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm unfortunately no exception with that. And uh, so among all these works that you just mentioned, mm. uh, works on this data set, the Global Terrorism Data Set, GTD, mm. <clears throat> these previous works, what was missing? What did you think you, you could contribute that motivated you to, to work and spend time on this data set? I hadn't seen a multivariate analysis of these data at any point. It was, it was always, uh, let's, go and look at, let's go and look at this as a single sequence of things. It was always with a view to, oh, let's, let, let's, let's, do, let's do something fairly straightforward or something that, if, if not straightforward, then out, quite a way outside of what, I might, what we might term traditional change point detection, sort of using the, the classic basket of techniques like binary segmentation, like PELT and so on. So I thought, well, why not try? Uh, why, why, why not see what we can what we can do? That was really what got me started. It was just it was just looking at the data in a slightly different way to to what people had done before. As I say, the the data kind of lend themselves quite nicely to a spatial analysis. Plenty of people have done that. There's a really really nice map of uh, that sort of com compiles uh, all the activity over the map of the world that you can find online. It's a really good resource. But again, it was it was just nobody had quite looked at it in the way that we wanted to look at it, and that that was what got me started. It was it was it was that internal visualization, if you like, of of, of the data that I was keen to realize. By the way, uh, it's probably a nice thing to mention and to hopefully have in the cherry-picked version of the conversation yes. that we're going to the podcast. This is what you told us about, research on this data set. This is what you told us about in your recent talk at our departmental seminar series in the Department of Statistical Science. Yeah. That's a talk that attracted very much interest and, and everyone was excited about it. Can you, can you give us the highlights of this talk? Oh, you're, you're, you're very kind to say that it attracted interest in me. That's that's very kind. It was it was it was it was great to come down to UCL, uh, be there, being there in person. It was it, it, it still feels somewhat of a novelty just to, to actually see physical people when giving a talk. Um, I never I, ne I never want to go back to 2020, 2021. But yes, you're quite right. So I mentioned this Omen method before, as as uh, or I teased it at least with regards to trying to be model free, trying to not require too restrictive assumptions on what you're changing from and to in change detection, while maintaining a multivariate perspective on things, while also being able to detect both sparse and dense changes, so being able to detect changes that affect just a small subset of the variance in the system versus most, if not all, of the variance in the system, and finally also being online. That kind of Venn diagram of doing all those things at once is a hard problem in change detection. So there are a couple of methods that I can point to before 2019, and there weren't any. So um, there's a method called GStream, which I think has an R package. Um, so this is a method by Hao Chen at UC Davis. That's a very good method. And it works actually as well on non-Euclidean data, which is quite 
which is which, which is which is of interest. Now, until this year, I think I thought it was pretty much the only effort in the literature that which tried to do all three all of these things in the in the Venn diagram at the same time. There are a couple more which are slowly springing up, but they tend to rely on things like uh, deep learning or reinforcement learning. Um, so that so they rely on um, things outside what you might call kind of traditional kind of fu- fundamentally you know, likelihood-based uh, classical statistical techniques, if you, if you like. They're starting this new age of techniques, if you like, for change detection that, that's very exciting, but uh, is kind of outside the wheelhouse in which I was I was originally working. Omen is, is an attempt to be a little bit classical while being inside the Venn diagram, at the, uh, being, being in the middle of the Venn diagram at the same time. And this is what I was talking about last week when I came to UCL. Essentially, I was presenting a lot of theory uh, with regards to why this new method worked. In broad strokes, what this method does is it just takes in some data from your potentially quite high dimensional series, and it just looks at it for a little while. And it looks at it for a, a time called the what we call the learning window. And within the learning window, what we're going to do is we're going to build a profile for each of the variates in your system. And we're going to compute an empirical commutative distribution function. And then we're going to use that empirical commutative distribution function to transform all subsequent data points that we see in each of the variates in each stream. So we're going to look at each element in the stream separately, each, each variant in the stream separately, using the ECDF that we've uh, we've created for each uh, each of the variants. So we do that, and then we do a subtle adjustment. So we do a subtle adjustment to each of the uh, numbers once we've applied the empirical CDF after the learning window, such that we get a normal not one when there is no change point. And uh, happy to happy to talk through exactly how, uh, or I, th- I think possibly the talk from last week was recorded, or if, if, if you like, you can contact me and uh, have a look at my slides. And eventually this will be hopefully a published paper. Yeah, feel free feel free to read it once it comes out. But you can trans- you can transform this to get to get, to get normal not one in a not too complicated a way. But that's only under the assumption of no change. If you do get a change point, then the result is something which is sub-Gaussian, but not necessarily normal not one. So you can transform a problem of an arbitrary change point to a problem in detecting a change from normal not one to something which is still sub-Gaussian, but very unlikely to be normal not one. At that point, the problem essentially becomes a hypothesis test. Is that correct? That's right. That's exactly right. Yes. Essentially, the the art at that point is uh, working out how you control the false alarm rate um, while making sure that you detect as many changes as you can, both sparse and dense changes. So changes that are affecting, again, just a small subset of the variates or all the variates at once. And uh, yes, I presented some theory last week, which showed that you could do that, uh, depending on appropriate setting of various different uh, things in the distribution and so forth. Uh, and, the, and the method remains online. Um, so it's it, it, it's an efficient method. Uh, I, I've, I've, run it, I've run it again on the GTD just to make sure. And I was able to this time stratify by country um, and do things by day. And it was finding everything that we were finding before and also some interesting other, other features. So interestingly enough, 2008 was seen as a change point for a lot of countries. I guess the global financial crisis um, precipitated a sort of subtle change in some places. We also detected sort of esoteric things. I, I feel bad saying esoteric, actually. It's, uh, we also detected some country-specific things, I should say. So just to give some examples, in 2015, there was a political crisis in Bangladesh um, for the first half of the year. The method actually sort of exactly found the beginning and the end of the, of the crisis. Um, unfortunately, the, um, the period of time lent itself to numerous acts of unrest, which were classified as terror under the uh, under the rules of the database. So, found things like that, and the also uh, uh, also the feature that we found, which um, I was pleased with because it is, I, I see it as a useful validation tool for any method, is we found a change point on the first of January nineteen ninety eight, and the reason why that's a useful validation tool for any method which is wanting to do change point detection on the GTD is that on the 1st of January 1998, the data collection procedure, if you like, for the GTD changed. 
because they changed the definition of what terrorism was. By they here, again, I mean I mean the start, I mean the University of Maryland, I mean the people compiling the GTD. I don't mean that every single human got together and unilaterally changed the decision. Although, although they, they may have done it, I don't know. I was only I was only a nipper in 1998. They fundamentally changed the definition of what a terrorist attack was, and so therefore you would expect to see a change point everywhere. And indeed, you do see, if you boil it down by region or by country, you do see sort of a, a very strange and peculiar looking drop uh, in, in terror activity in 1998. They wanted to be more concentrated with what a terror activity actually, actually meant. Despite that, despite the fact that there was this drop in 1998 almost everywhere, unfortunately, there has never been more t- terror activity pretty much than than now. It's not, that's not quite true. It was, it was, it was at its peak in the mid-2010s. But essentially, essentially, it is still true, which is not not all that good. So the the, the need for clear-headed policymaking that's informed by years and years worth of uh, data analysis and data collection and and all the rest of it is still very important, and it's it's why I still think this, this problem is worth thinking about. Your method, Omen, uh, that you told us about, and uh, and and about which research on the data set uh, mm. GTD uh, is about. Uh, the O stands for being online. The N stands for multivariate. That's right. And, and I suppose the N stands for non-parametric or sort of being model-free. That's Is right. it fair to say that those are the highlights of your method and, and that's what your method brought in that was missing in previous works on this data set? That's right, yeah. So um, when when I first came up with Omen, which was actually, I think, in 2018, uh, it was very late 2018, and my PhD ended in 2019. So I had sort of a, a few a few months of scrabbling together the method to just sort of get the code working. And uh, yeah, since, since, since then, I've just been improving it and touching up the theory and uh, then got distracted by things like the pandemic and uh, <laughs> doing data analysis therein. But that's, that's, that's another story. Back then in 2018, I wasn't aware of anything in the literature that did all of these things at once. That's not to say they didn't exist. It's just that I wasn't aware of it. Now, as I say, there are a couple of entries in the literature which do claim to live inside the uh, middle of the Venn diagram, doing all of these things. I've mentioned GStream, mentioned a few other techniques, but they're still very much the minority, and uh, they all have they all have interesting issues. And I'm not saying that Omen isn't without issues. Its detection power relative to offline methods is not great. Um, it's, it can detect things. It will detect change if it's sufficiently noticeable and prominent. But hey, there's still there's still work to do here. There's still potentially a better method out there to be found. But as I say, that that was the uh, that was the reason behind uh, trying to do trying to do a moonshot on, on this. That's great. And that kind of leads us to the last set of questions that I wanted to touch upon in this conversation. And that's all great, by the way. You just mentioned um, there might be some open things, some unresolved problems that you, mm. I suppose, would like to pursue on this same line of research in the future. Would you mind sharing a bit about your plans for the future in terms of like research plans? Yeah. And what do you hope to accomplish? Sure. So there's an awful lot still to do in change detection. I mean, change is the only thing that's constant, and so that, so, so the, 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 the only thing that's uh, that's changing really is the, is, is, the, is the nature of the problem. I think that uh, the exciting aspects of this uh, are evolving into well, what happens when you have measures of dependence? Not even thought about that with respect to Omen. What happens when you have systems where variants drop in and out? How can you properly account for that? I talked a little bit about non-Euclidean data with respect to the G-stream technique. Um, but you know what? What about, for example, quite complicated graph-based uh, models? So there are a few researchers here at uh, Bristol who've been thinking about uh, graph-based change point detection and have come up with some really nice techniques. But uh, again, how how do you map that into the sphere of being online and so forth? So there are an awful lot of really quite hot button, exciting tasks uh, that I could sink, sink my teeth into. I personally am quite interested in the notion of uh, change detection in text data, just because although we now sensibly have some techniques that can be model-free and efficient in that way, there are obviously models that we can build that 
are good at uh, are good at analyzing text and and say and saying, yep, this this is this for example sentiment. This yep, this this is this is a good summary statistic for what's going on in the text at this moment in time. Where here time is how far you are through a corpus or something. So that's a problem I'm quite keen on. Um, I've seen a few a few uh, contributions in the literature uh, in this regard, but they tend to stick to relatively simple change detection techniques. Nothing wrong with that at all. But if some notion of more modern, more up-to-date change detection techniques that uh, encompass, let's say, a wider variety of uh, more informed model and non-model based approaches, um, alongside some hefty thinking from the uh, from, from the NLP people, if that can be brought together, I think I think we've got something quite exciting on our hands. Um, so this is something I was thinking about a little bit uh, at the turn of 2021, 22, um, before the other other things took over my life a little bit. But uh, I think that, I think that would be a really cool problem and one that I'd quite like to think about even more. Cool, that sounds great. Here is another question, and I'm going to, in this question, I'm going to take on something uh, that I heard you say um, just a moment ago. So there are some approaches to change point detection that are based on these uh, currently kind of trending techniques coming mm. from deep learning, deep reinforcement learning, these techniques coming from machine learning. Yes. And uh, this is all very new, and this is all very exciting. It's making use in the media in, in all sorts yeah. of problems. Now, my impression, about how work goes uh, in this area is uh, you have a problem and then you throw a big neural network at the problem. And if that doesn't work, then you modify the parameters of the neural network until it does work, or you throw a big neural network hoping that it works. <laughs> so do you have any comments about, uh, like, you know, with the mind of a statistician, do you have any comments sure. about this line of work? Is it likely to succeed for the problem of change point detection? That's a, that's a good question. So fundamentally, if I, if I detach practical hat for a moment and just think about this from a theoretical perspective, the types of signal that change point detection people like and have thought about for years and years is, you know, something which is a constant with abrupt change followed by constant with abrupt change and so forth. I mean, obviously, there are some people who take the much more noble approach of uh, of, of, of a, you know, something more complicated, but we'll, we'll come back to that in a moment. Now, that notion of, of an underlying function, if you like, of piecewise constant is something which is pack learnable, and in particular, it will have you, you can you can draw up a neural network with finite factor of an nth dimension, which gives you in theory can spit out the right function. Classical change point detection, in that sense, is within reach of a neural network for sure. Whether it's the right thing to do from a practical perspective is interesting. I have seen a few papers that attempt to do this interestingly enough not in the discrete piecewise constant setting that i just outlined so there's a paper that focuses on pyramid recurrent neural networks and focuses on the frequency domain of of, of your of your time series in and well in this case the time series in question was i think bees waggling the, the bees bees and bees dancing i'm not one to comment on data choices uh, i think i think all all, da all data are very beautiful and yeah there's, there's some very nice ideas in there at the same time, uh, with regards to reinforcement learning, there is, I think, a really nice method that came out. It's either 20, late twenty twenty one or early this year that focused on that precise the, pro the the problem of change detection in self driving cars, employing reinforcement learning, and I think it was deep reinforcement learning as well. There was they had, they had they had some neural architecture that they were tuning, and this method actually is one of the few that I was briefly referring to before as one which was inside this Venn diagram of being online, being model free, being multivariate, etc. So essentially, what I'm trying to say is that all these papers are pretty recent, and all of these, uh, all these sort of thoughts with regards to oh, this 
this type of neural network, you know, or this, this this type of function class that you're trying to learn is is path learnable, etc. I mean, obviously we've had we've had the concept of a uh, VC dimension for a very very long time. I think it's only very recently that uh, there's been a concerted effort towards actually trying to establish why neural networks work so well. I mean, you have this theoretical gap between how well neural networks should be able to do based on high dimensional statistical theory and how well they actually do. I mean, they, they do much better than they should. And there are various, I mean, nobody's entirely sure of, of the answer, I would argue, but um, there are various interesting theories put forward. Uh, one hypothesis is that you've got stochastic gradient descent being helped by the fact that you often start in a useful place. Which I think is a compelling theory, and there are other there are other competing hypotheses. There's uh, there, there there is a, a great paper called Deep Learning: A Statistical Viewpoint, which uh, came out last year, which I heartily recommend, and that sort of has the uh, Vatmichovanenkis result that I mentioned before. All of these contributions are very recent, um, and it's 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 a very fast moving field. So I'd say I'm excited, but still cautious. Uh, as, as somebody who grew up, still maybe, maybe I'm the last generation, but I, 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 as a change point person who grew up in the uh, in the era of kind of traditional hypothesis testing, ultimately, uh, I'm I'm excited to see what the future brings. But at the same time, um, I have I have I have some caution, some reservation. But that's only natural. I'm I'm, I'm already an old fuddy duddy. Thank you, Sam. Thank you very much. UCR Minds brings together the knowledge, insights and ideas of our community through a wide range of events and activities that are open to everyone. 